Lesson three, what I hope to do in lesson three is help us, all of us collectively, to make sense of Habakkuk making sense. Um, What I mean and intend to do is take what some of the things that we learned from the first lecture and second lecture and actually implement it as we might look at a certain passage of Habakkuk together. So what we hope to do collectively by all of us speaking is for you all to take some tools home and start reading and studying the minor prophets, maybe with a little bit more clarity of how they might piece together or what some things are doing there. But then what we want to do last is we want to actually put some sense to practice. So some of this will be group involved. Um, and by that, I mean, I actually want you to not raise your hand, but just yell out whatever you think the answer is. And if it's wrong, we'll just move on to someone else who has the right answer. <laughs> You are not being recorded, so it's totally okay if you ruin everything, and maybe other people won't hear you. But what I want to do is uh, first just give you a glimpse and and set the stage for tomorrow. So instead of an introduction that you might have, point one, just setting the stage for tomorrow. I, I would doubt that any of us here have a problem with the desire to study scripture or read the Bible or wake up in the morning and approach the word. Where it gets hard is during that time, you might lose a little clarity or wonder what is happening. Maybe you go to Joel and go, why are horses climbing on walls? And so you don't then immediately want to study tomorrow. How many of us have read a book and we can't wait to pick it up again the next time we sit down and read? My wife can read a book for like four hours at a time. I can read for like 30 minutes at a time and then I turn Netflix back on. But the desire to go back to the book typically is what's drawing us back there. And oftentimes when we think of scripture, uh, we might lose a little bit of clarity and that for whatever reason kind of dampens our approach to the next day. So what I'm hoping to do is for us to tangibly and practically walk away with several things that as we approach the minor prophets, how to go about them. So not all of us, if you're like me, can just sit down and read Habakkuk and go, oh, of course, you know, literary things that help make sense. Here's where it's a part of the 12. I've studied and memorized Hebrew before. Of course, he's talking about this and this and this on our first approach. Um, So what we're going to do is set up a couple of things that will help us so that when you go back tomorrow, maybe after church, if you can't get enough and start reading Habakkuk. So what I want us to do is start with a little bit of a warm up. So in the same way, for those of you who used to do athletics, you start before you'd play a game in baseball with maybe taking some ground balls, maybe warming up your shoulder, playing a little catch before the game actually goes. So I want you to look at Habakkuk. You can turn anywhere there in the couple of pages that Habakkuk is. And I want one of you to just shout out a verse where you see vivid imagery. So the goal of this is for you to start warming up your minds to the random glorious things of Habakkuk. So turn to Habakkuk. It's okay to use the table of contents. That's totally fine. I did twice this morning. So where do you see some vivid imagery? Yeah, the raised hand. 310. 310. Can you read that out loud? The mountains saw you and rise. Great. So mountains are seeing things. The waters are working. So what's another use of vivid imagery here? Can you read that? Why do you make men like fish of the sea? Sorry, I cut you off there. Great. So that was chapter 1, verse 14. So if you're taking notes, just you can write those passages down. Chapter 1, verse 14. Okay, what about figurative language? Can anyone quickly find figurative language? 2.11, the stones cry out. 2.11, the stones cry out. Very good. What's another example of figurative language? 1.8, the horses are swifter. Really good. Okay, what about language that talks about God's glory? I'm on number three, parentheses three, three, two in the warm-up section. God's glory. Okay, chapter three, verse two. O Lord, I have heard the report of you in your work. O Lord, do I fear. Really good. What's another one alluding to or specifically talking about God's glory? 2.14. 2.14. Can you read that? For the earth will be filled with the 
Very good. Okay, I'm going to do just one more, even though we've got two more. What about judgment? Are there any verses or parts of verses that just showcase judgment in any capacity? What chapter was that? 112. Thank you. Chapter 112. Very good. What's one more? 2.6. Can you read that? All right. Really good. So the reason I do that is to one, to get you all to look in the text randomly, but then two, sometimes it just helps to, to let things rise to the service when we approach a book like Habakkuk or one of the other minor prophets. So, so we all know that minor prophets have things like judgment and God's glory and vivid imagery and figurative language. And so it's often great just to start looking for those things. And then later on, we'll start reading it as the prophet wrote it and let them piece together. So we did that just as a warm up in the same way that you might uh, just to get your juices flowing. Um, and then what we're going to do briefly is watch a video. So that should tell you how great of a speaker I am. <laughs> I'm going to let you watch a cartoon. This is like science when you have a substitute teacher. You watch Bill Nye, the science guy. Um, what we're doing in this video is we're actually, uh, Ron found a great video um, put together by the Bible Project. And they've made book or videos on all the books of the Bible. And they wonderfully really sum up the different books of the Bible. So what I'm assuming is that not all of you have read this morning all of the book of Habakkuk, or maybe even in some cases, it's been a long time since you've read the book of, of Habakkuk. And what this will do in about six minutes is sum up the book, and then we'll go from there and actually start uh, looking at things more ex exegetically. So Chris is going to turn on the video, and you can just sit back, relax, and watch um, the book of Habakkuk be explained. The book of the prophet Habakkuk. He lived during the final decades of Israel's southern kingdom and it was a time of injustice and idolatry. He saw the rising threat of Babylon on the horizon and that was not good news for anybody. But unlike the other prophets, Habakkuk does not accuse Israel. He doesn't even speak on God's behalf to the people. Rather, all of his words are addressed personally to God. And the book tells about Habakkuk's personal struggle, his journey of trying to believe that God is good when there is so much evil and tragedy in the world. And so Habakkuk's words are actually poems of lament, and they're very similar to the laments that you find in the book of Psalms. The poet lodges a complaint and then draws God's attention to suffering or injustice in the world, demanding that God do something. And knowing about this lament form, it's actually the key to understanding the design and message of this short book. Chapters 1 and 2 are framed as a back-and-forth argument between Habakkuk and God. And the prophet lodges two complaints to which God offers two responses. His first complaint is that life in Israel has become horrible. The Torah is neglected, resulting in violence and injustice, and it's all being tolerated by Israel's corrupt leaders. And Habakkuk, he's crying out, asking God to do something, but nothing seems to change. But then all of a sudden, God responds. He says that he's very aware of the corruption of his own people, Israel, and that he's summoning the armies of Babylon to bring down his justice on Israel. And very similar to the message of Micah or Isaiah, God says he will use this terrifying empire to devour Israel because of their injustice and evil. But Habakkuk has a problem with this answer, and so he offers his second complaint. He says Babylon is even worse than Israel. They're more corrupt. They're more violent. They've deified their own military power. They treat humans like animals, gathering them up like fish in a net, he says. They devour nations and people groups in order to build their own empire. And so Habakkuk says, how can you, a holy, good God, use such corrupt nations as your instruments in history? He demands an explanation. In fact, he depicts himself as a watchman on the city walls waiting for God's response, which eventually comes. God tells Habakkuk to get out some tablets and chisel and write down what he sees and hears. It's a vision about an appointed time in the future that even though it may seem slow in coming, it will eventually come. In fact, God says that the righteous person will live by their faith in this hope and vision. 
So what is this divine promise that Habakkuk is supposed to write down? It's that God will bring Babylon down. God says that the violence and oppression of the nations creates this never-ending cycle of revenge and that God will use this cycle to bring about the rise and fall of nations. And the fact that God might for a time use a corrupt nation like Babylon does not mean that he endorses everything that they do. He holds all nations accountable to his justice. And so Babylon will fall along with any other nation that acts like them. God's promise is then elaborated by a series of five woes that describe the kinds of oppression and injustice that's perpetrated by nations like Babylon. The first two target unjust economic practices, like how wealthy people will charge ridiculous interest just to keep poor people in debt, and so they build their wealth through crooked means. The third woe is a critique of slave labor, treating humans like animals and threatening them with violence if they don't produce. The fourth woe targets the abuse of alcohol by irresponsible leaders. While people are suffering under their bad leadership, they're partying and wasting their money on sex and booze. And the last woe exposes the idolatry, the engine that drives such nations. They have made money and power and national security into their gods, offering these allegiance at all costs. And so people become slaves to their own national empire. Now, the practices described here aren't unique to Babylon, but that's part of the point. Given the human condition, most nations eventually become Babylon. And so this is how God's answer to Habakkuk in this book becomes God's answer to all later generations, to anyone who lives in a world ruled by other Babylons. But it leaves the question hanging. Is God going to let this cycle, the rise and fall of Babylon-like empires go on forever? And that question is what chapter 3 is about. We're told that this is a prayer of Habakkuk, and it begins by Habakkuk pleading with God to act now in the present like he has in the past in bringing down corrupt nations. And what follows is a very ancient poem. It first describes a powerful, terrifying appearance of God. It's very similar to the opening poems of Micah and Nahum and similar to the appearance of God at Mount Sinai in the book of Exodus. There's cloud and fire and earthquake. When the Creator shows up to confront human evil, everybody will be paying attention. Habakkuk then goes on to describe this future defeat of evil as a future exodus. So just like God came as a warrior and he split the sea in his battle against Pharaoh, Habakkuk says that God will once more bring his judgment down on the head of the evil house. So Pharaoh, like Babylon, has become here an archetype of violent human nations. But at the same time, we're told that when God confronts evil, he will save his people and his anointed one. It's a reference to the king from the line of David. And so in this poem, the Exodus story of the past has become an image of the future Exodus God will perform. He will once again defeat evil and bring down the pharaohs and the Babylons of this world. He'll bring justice to all people and rescue the oppressed and the innocent. And it's this hope that enables Habakkuk to conclude the book with hopeful praise. Even if the world's falling apart with food shortage or drought or war or whatever, he will choose trust and joy in the covenant promises of God. And so Habakkuk, by the end of this book, becomes a shining example of how the righteous live by faith. Habakkuk recognizes just how dark and chaotic the world and our lives can become. And he invites us into a journey of faith, of trusting that God loves this world more than we do, and that he will one day deal with its evil. And that's what the book of Habakkuk is all about. Early. Now, so um, so that's a very helpful overview. I hope I hope in some ways that brought up some new things that you didn't see. I'm a visual learner, so just having things in different parts. Um, I have no idea how they make cartoons act like that, but it's really helpful to look at it that way. Um, next, you'll see on your outline that I've broken down Habakkuk into several parts. That might look just like some of your outlines in your Bible. So oftentimes, especially in a study Bible, at the beginning of a book, they have an outline there for you. Um, what that does is it helps us as we approach a book to, to separate things so that we can start attacking it um, and, and seeing what it means. If you're unfamiliar with the book of Habakkuk, 
Um, it's unique to even the minor prophets in that Habakkuk isn't speaking necessarily to people, but is speaking to God, and then God has him write down things that are exposed to other people. And so what we have in Habakkuk is a man who is complaining to God um, that God is not seeking or playing out justice on bad people. Um, and he's talking about, in a lot of ways, the people he, that he's normally around. So why is God acting that way? God answers him in the middle part of chapter 1, and Habakkuk does not like God's answer. And he said, how could you, how could you promise to crush evil by using even more people to crush evil? And then God responds to him a second time, and the two responses that God gives Habakkuk actually causes Habakkuk in some ways to understand, maybe not the, the short-term answers, but the long-term expression that God will provide for his people, crush out evil, uh, seek justice, and provide mercy. And so chapter 3 of Habakkuk is in some ways his psalm, which is his prayer, and then just his acknowledgement of who God is. Where we're going to zoom in, as I have on the outline, where I want us to zoom in on is on the second exchange. So in beginning of chapter 1, verse 12, so starting there, Habakkuk is going to give his second almost speech or time of question. I call it the are you serious complaint. So we're going to start there, the second exchange, and then see God's response. And then for just a brief period of time, we'll see the woe oracles that God gives Habakkuk that Habakkuk gives the rest of the world. And I just want to bring your attention on the outline to those five woes and just the overwhelming amount of alliteration that I put to work there. I started out with the first one. I accidentally kept using C's on the second one. And then it's like, you know what? It's 1130 at night. Let's just see how far this can go. One of those woes actually isn't, doesn't make sense to what's in the scripture. And I will let you study that and figure out which one. So I kind of got a little carried away with thesaurus.com and one of those isn't perfect like the other four are, but I'm not going to tell you which ones. But anyway, so we're going to look at exchange number two, starting in verse 12 of chapter one, and it goes to uh, the very end of chapter two. What we're going to be spending our time together with and, and conversing back and forth are some of the tools that I use if I were to just immediately approach the book of Habakkuk. So all of us, the first thing that we do, maybe when we approach a book, is we pray. You know, we pray for God to help us understand what he wants us to understand. We pray for clarity of what the text is supposed to mean to us, but also what the text is supposed to mean to itself. So we pray and then we read. After that, it becomes very scattered for many of us. So we might approach Bible reading to how we approach cleaning our house. We might start in the bathroom one time. We might start in the garage another time. We might not even make it to our bedroom. It may be four weeks before we actually do the laundry and we're just scattered amok. So what I hope to do is give you some principles within the context of the outline that you can take home and go, okay, if I'm gonna read Habakkuk, I'm gonna first do this. Second, maybe do this. Third, do that. This is what I do a lot of the time whenever I study um, I don't use everything every time, but it kind of, for me, it gives me a little bit of a framework. So within the outline, 3.5, zooming in on the second exchange, I'm at the part now where we want to start doing the prophet's exegesis. So what does the word mean? First thing we do when we do this is we just pray. Uh, we read it. I try to read something a whole lot of times until I just get exhausted. And then I'll read another time just to make sure that I'm not lazy. So you might read like three or four times this section of scripture. You might even write it down, look at different translations. The internet's really helpful at that. So if you don't have many copies of the Bible, you might look at what it says in the NIV or the NLT or the ESB, uh, the New American Standard. If you're really intense about studying the scriptures, you can laugh at that versus the other ones. All right, this is going to be great. So we're going to look at just what the words say. Um, you might do a word study where you actually look up, what does the word woe mean? Or what does it mean for him to actually have tablets to write something on? How often is that used? Um, so what I like to do is just start counting different words that seem to be there often. So if you just look at the text, verses 12 through the end of chapter 2, what are some of the words that stick out to you? I'll do one. It's the Lord. So what are some other words that stick out when you read that? 
Wicked? Sorry? Met? The net, okay? What else? What are some things that are used multiple times, maybe? And is used a lot. That doesn't count. Righteous. Righteous. Traitors. Traitors. Really good. Now you're starting to see it. Bloodshed. I'm sorry? Bloodshed. Bloodshed. Blood. Blood. Yeah, so things like that. You can actually start counting different words as if the writer of this prophet actually meant to use certain words. So uh, words like two, he uses two like T-O, uses two 23 times. You know, so in that way we go, okay, things are happening. It's not just a passive book. Or you is you 16 times. Or some, some form of God or the Lord or he is used, I, th- I think last time I counted like 40 or 50 times. So even that says, Okay, this book isn't about me. It's actually about God and the Lord. So things like, simple things like that. Or you might isolate phrases. What are some phrases that stick out to you as you just look at the text? None of them are going to be used like 30 times, so don't look at it like that. The most used phrases or a couple of words is five times. Woe to him. Woe to him. Exactly. Five times that's used. What else? Their own strength. Good. There's one repeated whole sentence. Can you find it? Starts with four, F-O-R. For the blood of man. Can you see that? It's not just used once, it's used twice. I'm using the ESV, so that's probably totally unhelpful if you're using another thing. So Habakkuk has for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to the cities, and all who dwell in them. It's used twice. That should in some ways strike us. Why does he use that twice? Did he just want to remind us again? Is there something important there? We don't maybe yet know. So we do things like look at how many times words are used or um, is there a repeated idea, a repeated phrase? And and a lot of this is just to keep us in the text. Too often um, I go to the scriptures because I'm feeling an emotional way one way or the other and I immediately want it to speak to me rather than keeping my head in the text and seeing whatever is in the text there and actually let God speak to me according to his own word. So we have phrases that are repeated, words that are repeated. This is really good. We're starting to see different things. But we have this problem where many of us, I would assume, are not used to poetry. Uh, We're used to stories or facts. We read the news. We watch the news. We just want the facts. And then we approach a minor prophet, and it's in poetic form. And so when we come to uh, something like poetry, we want to see not just the words and how they're used, but also the tone and how the tone might shift. So how things go from one to the other. So you might have noticed in the video um, that on the, the first response, when Habakkuk questions God, what are you doing? God responds to him. What is, what is, how does Habakkuk respond? Looking for an answer. He asks another question, right? But, but how does he respond like if you're a parent, you have a child who's responding a certain way? outraged, right? There's emotion there. There, There's something that shifted from how God was speaking to Habakkuk to all of a sudden Habakkuk was now speaking to God. What are you talking about? You're using these guys who are even worse than us and they're going to be the ones who punish us? Like, are you not a just God? Are you not absolutely in control? So he shifts, even though he keeps adoration and questioning and he's waiting for God's answer, there's a shift there and especially in our passage, uh, chapter 1, verses 12, going through the second 
where he is shifting and wondering about almost with a greater anxiety or he's anxious for something that God is going to say to him. So we not only look at the words, we also look at the tone of the words, the shifting and how things are being spoken about. Um, my sister uh, studied very heavily in college and even after college um, English and the English language and especially Shakespeare. Uh, very much nerded out on a lot of things. And I remember uh, on breaks when she was home from college, she would just read Shakespeare, not out loud, and would just sit in the living room and just giggle at certain things. Because the, the connotation of some of these texts actually cause emotion in the reader. Or I remember one time she was on a treadmill and she started laughing at the things that Martin Luther was saying to other people. And then she gasped at another time when Martin Luther was talking to someone. This is on an elliptical. Like, I get on an elliptical to zone out. But the words there mean something, and they cause us to react in a certain way. And so when we read this text, we're not just looking for words of judgment or how many times two or four is used, but we're also, especially in poetry or minor prophet settings, we're looking for the emotion as it rises and lowers bit by bit. So moving on, we also want to see how the author might organize Um, the text and see if there's anything intended within that. So I gave you an outline, uh, maybe a little bit before, and we see that there's an intention where he doesn't just, Habakkuk isn't asking two major questions and then God gives two responses, but he organizes it in such a way that he's asking God something, God responds. He's asking God something and God responds. Now just simply, what does that convey to us about maybe the author's intention? There are a couple perfect examples. So you could be any one of those if you want to volunteer yourself. God talks to his people. God listens to his people. Very good. What else? Yeah, so there's almost this higher level of God's knowledge and understanding. Now, you wouldn't walk away with Habakkuk and go, okay, the point of Habakkuk is that God listens to people. Uh, But we actually see qualities and characteristics of a loving God within that, and that he's listening to someone. He doesn't punish someone for asking him a question, but he's hearing what someone's saying and then responding to him. So we can assume or see within the text that God is responding to people when they cry out to him. God hears and answers them. Uh, we can see that God, even within these answers, doesn't just hear you and say, I understand, I hear you, you're a person. But he actually bestows wisdom on these people by saying that he will, with, he, he will seek out justice and he will bring justice on ungodly people. So we're seeing that within this emphasis, the author's intended emphasis, we're seeing things now about Habakkuk and about God just by asking questions about what's happening within the story. Next thing that I like to do when I'm studying this, so this is all within your outline under structure, just looking at the structure, is one of the most helpful things in all of Bible study, and that is using the cross-references. So does anyone know what a cross-reference is? Pretend, talk to me like you would a Labrador retriever. What is a cross-reference? Yeah, so another verse that might allude to or maybe say the exact same thing in another part of the Bible, right? So where do you find a cross-reference? So maybe in a margin on some of your Bible, maybe at the bottom of a page. I say all that because some of you, you don't have to raise your hands. Some of you don't know that. And those things are there for you. Not, not just to intimidate you or make you feel like, oh, I can't read the Bible, but actually you can look there. So I want someone to use an example from anywhere in this passage and tell me a cross-reference. Tell me what that cross-reference is and where it starts from in our passage. Okay, chapter 2, verse 11 says, For the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork responds. So, If I can use the screen here, Chris, what we have there is chapter 2, verse 11, and there's words here, and there's words here. And let's just assume this is on the left page, and there is some kind of mark right here. We'll say it's a 2. Over in your side, you might have a number 2, which will be, where where were you going? Is it Luke? Luke 
Luke 19.40. All right, let's turn to Luke 19.40. This is for all of us. Oftentimes we acknowledge that there's a cross-reference and we go, isn't that kind of these writers and especially these publishers, in my case, Crossway, that they would put these cross-references there. That builds trust in me that I can approach the word and it's not just accidentally typewritten, but we can actually go to Luke chapter 19, verse 40. And can someone else read Luke chapter 19, verse 40? Great. So there's something there that these publishers said, this verse is often a lot like this verse. And later on, we're going to see, especially with that circumstance, especially how that might link to one another. So we use cross-references when we study the Bible because it helps us see that what's happening in Habakkuk is not just isolated in Habakkuk chapter 2, but something's happening within all of Scripture that we need to bring our attention to. So what are some other cross-references? We're not going to turn to them. Yeah. Chapter 2, 4, I'm going to read, it says, Behold, his soul is puffed up, is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. Okay, what's the cross-reference? Romans chapter 1, Galatians chapter 3, Jesus chapter Yeah, you hit the money mark there. That, that has like 55 cross-references in other parts of Scripture. So what that means to us is, hey, maybe chapter 2, verse 4 is somewhat important because it's written about all over the New Testament. So we want to just isolate that, look at cross-references, study. This forces us, one, to read Scripture a lot, two, to slow down, three, it also builds trust in how the Scripture links to other parts of the Scripture. Does that make sense? Okay. Hopefully that's helpful for some of you who don't know how to use cross-references. And you have questions, please see one of us afterwards. Next thing just to look at is... Um, are just a couple of, I call them research points. But you look at things like history. So like what Ryan brought up earlier in the first lecture, um, this was written to Judea. Uh, it's, it was written before 605 BC. That, that means something in how they might allude to or talk about the deliverance, right? Uh, we look at some grammar issues or maybe some key terms. And a lot of this we might immediately not have access to. But the easiest thing is to just Google like Habakkuk chapter 2, grammar issues, or history of Habakkuk chapter 2, um, different things like that. So I want to bring up one grammar issue because I hope this will, one, uh, bring up in a lot of ways how cool some of the Bible is. So one of the things that I noticed when I was looking at the grammar of this text is we all hopefully understand that the Old Testament is primarily written in Hebrew. And one of the things that Hebrew... Um, exposes to us when it rhymes it it kind of highlights the importance of what's happening but there's another thing that this passage does in chapter 2 verses 6 through 20 is that a lot of this language doesn't just rhyme and you might see this if you google grammar issues and chapter 2 or whatever it, it, these words not or some of these words not only rhyme um, and that they sound alike when you say them but also how they're written so the accents and different ways that you would pronounce these hebrew words not only rhyme, but also they sound like each other when they're not normally supposed to. So when you have words that don't normally rhyme, but then you say them in a way that it sounds like they rhyme, what that brings is a heightened awareness of something here. So the point of this is when, when Habakkuk gives us these five woes, these five woes are written almost in an ironic way. So it says, woe to him in, chapter, in, in verse six, woe to him who heaps up what is not his long, what is not his own for how long? The way that this might be written in Hebrew is the word ha, almost like you would go, ha, those proud people are going to have it coming for them. You know, so why I say that it not only rhymes, but words that aren't normally supposed to rhyme, um, heighten it in where, heighten it in some ways. I want to give you a history lesson on the musical rhythm of rap. So, in the 70s and 80s, and even into the early stages of the 90s, you had this emerging use of musical lyrics where people were shaming other people with their words, and they would do it with rap. So you have East Coast, West Coast rappers rapping against one another, and they would use these powerful words and these powerful images that basically all resort to, you know, your mama, blah, 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 and your mama did this, but then they made it rhyme, and you're like, wow, that's really impressive. 
But then something happened in the late 90s and early 2000s where a rapper named Eminem would not only take rhyming words, but then he would say words that don't sound like each other and make those sound like they rhyme to basically a whole lyrical thrust was pounding you with someone basically against you. So I say all that not to flex my muscles on rap. I wasn't allowed to listen to it when I was younger and then college came. But then also what the writer is doing in Habakkuk is he's using language that should heighten the awareness of the reader that he's not just ironically saying, woe to you, this is about to happen. You proud people are going to have it. You people who have uh, built up your empires by stealing from others, all of your empires are going to be stolen from you. He not only says that in a lyrical way that makes you think, wow, this guy is awesome. He knows what he's talking about. He's actually using all of the language that's in front of him to basically shame every single one in front of him. I say all that to say the, the five woes there, um, if you were to read them in the original Hebrew, it's not just woe is this, woe is this, woe is this. It's someone who would be reading these tablets or these scrolls would go, oh, it's not just bad, it's really bad. It's not just really bad, it's really, really bad. All of this guy's language is against these proud people or these crude people or these deviant people. So we'd see different grammar issues that happened there. We would see different key issues, things like uh, blood that was brought up earlier, or um, you know, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of water issues, a lot of water or not issues language, things like that. So we look at just the words that are there. Any questions so far on the structure of the text? I know that hopefully some of this is no duh, like you use a cross reference or you read the words, or you even read the words again. But far too often, we just look past that, right? And we want to look at our study notes, and what does this really mean? Okay, so moving on to context. How does the immediate literary context inform the meaning of the text? Basically, we want to look at this passage and ask ourselves, what's happening before this, and then what's happening after this? And does that inform our understanding in any way? This is, this is immediately helpful when we're going through a narrative um, like what we're doing on Sunday mornings with Acts, right? So what just happened to Peter might mean something specifically on what Peter is about to do in Acts 13 or, or different chapters like that. So even with this case, we want to look at what just happened with Habakkuk and then what is going to happen afterwards. So what's happening before our section? Our section is chapter 2, verse 12, all the way through the end of chapter 2, or chapter 1, verse 12, all the way through the end of chapter 2. What's happening before that? Yeah, the Lord's responding to Habakkuk. How is he responding to Habakkuk's complaint? In a way, quite a bit different than right. What would you assume that Habakkuk was going to receive a response of by his first question? Yeah, really good. Okay, so what happens after this section? It gets worse. I'm sorry? It gets worse. It gets worse. What's happening in chapter 3? Habakkuk's responding to what the Lord says. Now, there's a lot within that, right? Because like Ron talked about what Ryan talked about, we need, we need to read this book in light of the other minors, right? So there are 11 other chapters to this great story, if you will, that, that have this involvement in it. So we need to look at what's happening before and what's happening afterwards. So within this, God tells Habakkuk that he should write down what's about to be said because it will take time to come to fruition, so he's writing this down, not just saying, hey, go tell everyone this, but actually write this down. So in, in some ways, that can be passed down to other people. The righteous shall live by faith. Um, the righteous shall live by faith as opposed to what? Maybe the righteous could live by success, or the righteous could live by understanding, or the righteous could live by conquering all the Babylonians who are about to come give them. But he's telling Habakkuk to actually write down in light of what Habakkuk has been asking, in light of what Habakkuk's been complaining about, that the righteous shall live by faith. 
So the Lord will win the true battle. After this text, Habakkuk responds with a prayer that he essentially understands a lot of what God is intending to tell him, even though he doesn't know everything that's about to happen. So God is responding to him, maybe not in a way that he would have immediately wanted, but he's understanding. We can see that in his praise of God and in his patience, and even then at the end that he's going to wait on God's will to be fulfilled. Um, We can look at this text in front of us because our text shows Habakkuk waiting on an answer from Yahweh, and he receives an answer, and then he praises God. So we want to look at the before and after of this text. We also want to ask why this text is here in this place. So in our case, with all these minor prophets, we want to look at it in the place of the other prophets. There's a modern scholar whose name is Paul House. I believe he teaches at Beeson Divinity School. And he's done a lot of uh, recent work that's uh, talked about in a lot of modern commentaries where he would say that the structure of the 12 um, basically follow a pattern of sin, punishment, and a promise of restoration or a short-term restoration. So you have all these minor prophets like Hosea, Joel, Amos, who are indwelling in, in this sin atmosphere. Um, and then you have others like Habakkuk, Nahum, Zephaniah, who are almost enduring punishment by God or outside forces. You know, pain is being inflicted on them. And then you have others that are being restored, like um, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. So within this, we would put this, why is this uh, minor prophet in this place? Well, this minor prophet is highlighting a lot of ways punishment, both the punishment that the people deserve because they've broken the covenant between them and God, but also you see this heightened extent of uh, cosmic evil and cosmic destruction. So that the rest of us can look at this, maybe oftentimes you looked at this, this text or this passage in your own life, and you've approached a backup because you have no idea what is going on. You know, maybe after an actual disaster, like a natural disaster, or maybe when there's a family crisis, or there's a health thing where you, you really have no idea what's happening. And a lot of your questions are a lot like Habakkuk's. Um, you know, you, you have the parallel between Joel, and, or not Joel, uh, Job and Habakkuk, where Job is basically going, why are the good guys being beat up? And then you have Habakkuk going, why aren't the bad guys being beat up? Oftentimes we place ourselves in one of those, right? Like, I've been a good person. Why are bad things happening to me? Or why aren't bad things happening to those people? So we can see Habakkuk within the context of the minor prophets, which like Ron really wonderfully pointed out, it it means you just got to read the other prophets, right? Okay, so we want to see how these things fit together, both before and after. We want to put Habakkuk in the place of the other minor prophets, read them as one big 12 chapter book. Um, And then we want to see maybe how, if there's this constant rhythm of the scripture, there's this constant rhythm of the gospel. Maybe there's even a constant rhythm, like I just talked about, sin, punishment, restoration of the prophets. How does this one add to it? Um, So Ryan, or uh, yeah, Ryan alluded to it a little bit ago. What, what's the, how does this add to the rhythm of the scriptures or of the minor prophets? The analogy is used a lot like jazz music, right? Where someone's, someone's tapping and that adds to the song of jazz music or someone's playing the bass and that adds to jazz music. So what is unique about Habakkuk's almost addition to the book of the 12 as a whole? Any, any guesses or suggestions? If you know the answer, then by all means say the answer. If you want to guess publicly, then by all means guess publicly. How is Habakkuk adding to the 12? Or how is this section in particular adding to the 12? Okay, God's intimacy. Really good. What else? God knows his people. I'm going to keep highlighting that to give you more time to think. God knows his people. He also knows what's going to happen. He has a unique place for his people. He's orchestrating all things. He's over all things. What else? How does this book highlight the, the rhythm of the scriptures? He has a plan and he's carrying it out. He has a plan and he's carrying it out. What, what plan uniquely is he carrying out? Salvation, good. What else? What? 
Do do bad things just disappear? Judgment, judgment against unrighteousness? Yeah, so one of the things that's really good, God uses evil to accomplish his purposes and maintains his holiness and, and glory. Is that right? Did I repeat you almost accurately? Okay, so God is maintaining his holiness while orchestrating things that to Habakkuk seem unjust. Like, how are you letting bad people get away with things? Aren't you holy? Aren't you good? And he has this, God has this big view in mind while also having this small view in mind of these people specifically, this man specifically, but also redemptive history especially. So one, one other way to look at it is, is this book adds to the 12 and that it exposes true crisis, right? It exposes true crisis of the soul. Why are these things happening? Also shows the crisis of sin, neglecting the Torah, neglecting God, the crisis of there are really bad people out there and they might come here and do bad things. So it's exposing crisis within the 12. So as we're looking at the text, remember where we started just a couple of minutes ago, we were looking at words. We started looking at words, then phrases, then maybe verses expanding outward. How how is this section connecting to other parts of scripture? Um, Now I want to take, we just looked at how Habakkuk connects to all the 12, and in some ways, all of redemptive history. So I want to ask the question, now I want to look at number two on your outline. I really hope we speed up here. Number two on your outline, the prophet's theology, or almost a theological for reflection. So a way to ask this is, how does this text anticipate the gospel of Jesus' death and resurrection, fulfillment of the scriptures, promise of the new heavens and new earth? How does our text in particular, so verses 12 through the end of chapter 2, how does our text anticipate the gospel? Ryan talked about this when he was talking about fulfillment. I'll let you think about it for a little bit. Yeah. Okay, you just said faith. I mean, where'd you get that? Are you just really smart or did you find it somewhere? Okay, chapter two, verse four. Everyone turn back there. He's not just saying things that he found, you know, in his study Bible. He looked at the actual scripture. So he's saying that God, you're saying that God is working within the paradigm of people having faith in him, not in faith in things of the world, right? So you would see that from chapter two, verse four. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. Okay. What else? How, how else does this text anticipate the gospel? The promise of global glory in 2.14. Okay, the promise of global glory in 2.14. Chapter 2, verse 14 says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Good. What other, what other things? If there are other things, could be a trick. All right, let's just take those two things there. So Habakkuk uh, 2, verse 4, and Habakkuk 2, verse 14. Um, these, these gentlemen are saying are anticipating the gospel. Where would you find this in the scripture where this gospel is actually being or is actually fulfilling those two things? So that the righteous will live by faith, the whole earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. Are you gentlemen just making this up or are there actually texts in scripture? If you don't know, I will tell you, you can, you can use a call in line. Jesus says, having faith like the mustard seed, very good. That was very good. I didn't write that one down, but so we'll move on. You can write that down and Google it later. What else? Yeah? There it is. Now we're, now we're putting things to work, right? Cross-references to verse 4. 
Okay, so just isolating his verse four, he's saying that it goes to Galatians and Hebrews. Um, there's one more, I believe, right? Romans. All right, so I'm going to read those because I planned ahead. Romans 1:17. For in the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul himself is quoting from our humble book in the Minor Prophets because it means so much. Another one, Galatians 3. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. That's Galatians 3.11. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 37. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Okay. So the other one that was mentioned was chapter 2, verse 14, anticipating the gospel, anticipating redemption. Um, it says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. I found that too, and I think one of the ways that we can see this come to fruition is in the book of John, chapter 1. So if you'll turn over to the book of John, chapter 1, and verse 14, book of John, chapter 1, verse 14. Part of studying the Bible is just the discipline of going through, not assuming, not thinking we know what we think we should know, but just putting our eyes on the text. John 1 verse 14 says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, uh, the only God who is, the fa- who is on, at the Father's side. He has made him known. So we see almost this fulfillment using a lot of the same language, a lot of the same context. And the whole earth will be filled in his glory. So what we have here is I want to use the example that Ryan used when he did... Um, uh, Isaiah 7, seeking short-term fulfillment in the sons, right? But then we see this greater fulfillment in Matthew. Does anyone remember Matthew 1, verse 21? Very good. Uh, Matthew 1, 21, where this is a larger fulfillment of what is happening. I'm not trying to cross these out. It's like a blanket. So, in our case, Habakkuk 2, we see two things. The earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. Um, Also, the righteous will live by faith. This is all in the context of coming judgment brought out by the Babylonians. So, as students of Scripture, did that judgment actually come? Short-term judgment, right? So, we've got little judgment there happening, but then we see a greater ultimate fulfillment. You'll remember that Ryan threw the rock and it bounced once and had ripple effects all around, bounced again, had ripple effects all around, bounced again, ripple effects all around. Because he's strong, it kept getting more and more strong and it's bouncing. So how does Habakkuk 2 have greater fulfillment than we could have ever expected throughout scripture? One, the righteous live by faith and unrighteousness was punished, right? But then what happens? Make it very simple on yourselves. Okay, the judgment of all nations. Okay. I'm going to make that capital J. Judgment of all nations. What else? Make it even simpler on yourself. Every year we observe a holiday. And why do we observe this holiday? Yeah? Do you know it? Okay. What happens that might fulfill this promise? The whole earth being given or being filled with the glory of the Lord. John 1 talks about, there it is, Jesus came. So you all thought it was way complicated, but it's actually Jesus Christ. Pretend this is Sunday school. Whatever the question is, the answer is, there it is. Jesus fulfills this. But there's even something even greater that the Bible is clear about. What is that? Jesus didn't just come and die. What is is an even greater promise than this? 
Salvation. Also what? Yeah, the, the what, do you, what did someone say earlier? The New Hampshire, the new heavens and new earth? All right. There's this ripple effect. Certainly, we would look at this as Christians and see the ultimate climax of this in Jesus Christ's death and resurrection so that our faith is not in vain, but also um, Jesus returns for his people. So we see this effect and we practice what we've learned earlier and seen um, the prophet's uh, theology being expressed um, in, in some ways through the prophet's expectation. So this is why it's really great to learn biblical theology or systematic theology. Biblical theology is where you piece all of the scripture storyline together in certain ways. Systematic theology is where you see certain truths throughout scripture that remain true throughout scripture. And you can identify those such as God is sovereign or he is holy, man is sinful. But then through the biblical theology, we can see that what's happening in Habakkuk 2 is not lost, but it's being fulfilled and the death and resurrection of Jesus as the one who ultimately comes to save his people. Okay, so lastly, I want to look at, um, well, before I get to lastly, one thing that might be important for us when we study the minor prophets is to keep a God-focused approach rather than an event-focused approach. So if you're like me, you might read Habakkuk and get really tied up into certain places certain timelines, certain people, certain genealogies, where things fit into place. And all of that is good. And you should spend time in the text finding that stuff out. But you should keep a God-viewed focus in mind when you do all of that. So remember, the scriptures are about God. As much as they're about issues or land or images or figurative language, the scriptures are about God and his story through his people. One thing that I like to look at before we um, approach quickly the application part is just seeing how uh, systematic theology might help us in our study. So the, uh, a simpler way to say this is what are the big categories that happen in this text? So I think one of them that someone said was sovereignty or God orchestrating all these things. God is in control of everything. So what, what are some others that if we look at this, we go, man, it's a lot about God's sovereignty. It's a lot about his control. I would love to read more about that. I might go to, you know, this guy's systematic theology and read a chapter on that. That might help me understand this better. What are some other categories that we might get from just this text? God's mercy. God's mercy. Very good. What does it mean for God to be merciful? I want to read all about that, right? Chapters on chapters of God's mercy. And we could see that exposed in a lot of ways in this. Why would you assume that in part, this is about God's mercy? Putting you on the spot, sorry. Yeah, patient towards the people. He says that the, the righteous will live by faith. Very good. What's another one? Doesn't bring judgment on everyone. Who's he bring judgment on? The unfaithful, right? Good. What else? God's wisdom. Play that out a little bit. That even though uh, Habakkuk uh, doesn't fully understand uh, God's ways, uh, eventually he, he uh, rejoices uh, in the Lord and uh, you know, acknowledges that uh, God's ways are above man's Yeah, God's ways are above man's ways. Uh, almost with, within the umbrella of God's sovereignty. There's him being all-knowing, him being all-wise. I would want to learn about that. I want to read about that, different things. You can see the holiness of God. Um, that was one of the first exercises we did. What are, what are things that show God's glory, his holiness? Uh, you can see faith played out in this. Um, if the righteous, if it says, the righteous shall live by faith, I want to really know what faith means. I want to know what a faithful life means. Um, I want to know what it doesn't mean. Um, if this quickly alludes to and hopes in the, the death and resurrection of Jesus, I want to know what that means again. Like they're, they're in our systematic theology book or any theology book, you can't read that chapter enough, right? What does it mean for Christ to die for ungodly people? 
giving his mercy over to them. So we see a lot of things just within this. You might have not looked at that uh, or thought about that when you were 30 minutes ago looking at different words and counting them and seeing. But then as we just keep expanding while looking at this text, we see all kinds of stuff about the truth of God being exposed in this book. I mean, how many of us would immediately approach Habakkuk and go, oh, there's a lot of atonement there or holiness there or redemptive history there or the righteous shall live by faith. And then all of a sudden it's like, actually, we don't have enough time to read Habakkuk. I could spend this all weekend long and you can. So lastly, I want us to look at the prophet's application. So we looked at the prophet's, um, I'm pulling up the outline here. Well, you can read on your own. The prophet's exegesis, and then finally the prophet's application. It will be a constant temptation for you to read prophetic texts and immediately descend into simple moralizing. You know, don't do this. Whatever those bad people are doing, don't do that. Um, So, for example, when Habakkuk records in chapter 2, verse 4, that an arrogant man is never at rest, does that mean you should just rest all the time and then you won't be arrogant? You should really enjoy your Saturday. Maybe even quit your job and rest in Christ all the time. We want to avoid quick moralization and see the prophets giving us a constant application of a call to faithfulness or a call to faithful living. Um, That's really how we can read these texts and glean from them after all this study is how does this make me follow the Lord with maybe greater intensity or better comfort or more rest? Um, So I want to bring your attention to Ryan's, the end of Ryan's outline. I think it's on page seven, if I'm remembering correctly. Nope, page five, the application. So just in those seven things, what are some of the things that we see in Habakkuk in our short little study that might be quick applications for us? Oh, you didn't say reflect, so I was getting nervous. Number three, very good. Thank <laughs> Reflecting God's character and his past provenness. It could be an application thing we could spend on for the rest of the afternoon. We could look at his character. What else do we have there? Number five, wait confidently for what's next. Remember the last thing that Habakkuk did at the end of the psalm? What does it say he did? He waited on the Lord. What else? Two more. Number seven, don't despise his discipline. Yeah, it's almost like he quickly forgot that his own nation deserved punishment, right? Like we didn't deserve that punishment, but very good. One more? Number two, flee to God's mercy. Very good. So we can see all of these almost under the umbrella of faithful living. And here are just a couple of quick things that we can do in reflection of that. Do you have any quick questions before we go into a time of question with me, Ron, and Ryan about this? As I kept talking, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, good question, thanks. Um, under the prophet's theology, prophet's expectation, and prophets alignment. Okay, so that was kind of messy, but what I meant to convey there, um, how does biblical theology, so under expectation, how does biblical theology help me anticipate or see the gospel? So just asking the question, maybe not where is the gospel within this text, but how does this text have me look towards the gospel? So that would be one. Um... That's where someone pointed out the cross-references became really helpful. So um, look at what these minor prophets are expecting. So kind of the second point under that. What is Habakkuk expecting under this? So in some ways, he's expecting God to not only answer them. He's waiting on the uh, wall, waiting for him, but he's also expecting him to answer it in a certain way. And then how does God respond to his expectation? But then also with the expectation of the prophet where they're hoping for God to fill the earth with his glory, um, trying to see a realization of what it means to live by faith, um, that quick, uh, on on my little drawing, that quick dive to um, Jesus Christ, 
uh, that becomes, you're, we're expecting the gospel to be revealed, but then also we want to look at, is the gospel being revealed according to the truth in this passage? So when I say there, the prophet's alignment, does what's happening in the New Testament with Christ align with what's happening in Habakkuk? Now the answer is yes, right? We hope. But just that mental exercise of going, okay, how does, how is what's happening in Jesus Christ's death and resurrection actually according to Habakkuk 2? Or how is it in alignment of? Or how is it fulfilling all these things? And Because I might quickly, and personally, I just go, well, yeah, it's according to it. All scripture is true and helpful. And, you know, Jesus fulfilled those things. But then actually going, okay, it fulfills chapter 2, verse 4 in this way. And I might even write it out if you're a verbal processor. Or chapter 2, verse 14, and it fulfills that way. So uh, within the prophet's alignment, asking how it fulfills, um, how it's according to. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Yeah. That's really great.